Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, could a citywide curfew for Atlanta youth be part of many solutions needed in addressing youth-related crimes. Now, Councilmember Keisha Sean Waits is behind legislation, and she'll join the program in just a moment to talk all about that. Also this hour, despite inflationary woes, holiday retail sales for November, December, guess what? It's expected to gross between $940 billion and $960 billion. So much for inflation. Here's some questions. If your item, if you ordered your item online, or if you go to the store, will it be in stock, or will it be shipped? Well, we'll talk all about that because it's the ongoing supply chain saga. We'll check in with John Haber. Also, new research from Georgia Tech shows Atlanta's nighttime rental scooter e-bike ban has led to more increased traffic congestion. So we'll talk more about that with the study's author. Important community conversations for sure. But first this, Asian American state lawmakers are launching their own caucus at the Georgia State Capitol. It comes as the number of Asian American state lawmakers continues to grow. Representative-elect Long Train of Dunwoody, Dunwoody hopes state and legislative leaders reach out to the new caucus. This is a very diverse caucus. Even though it's AAPI, you've got Vietnamese representation, Chinese, Korean, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, a very broad gamut of the Asian culture here in Georgia. So we're a wealth of knowledge. And we'll have more about the upcoming legislative session the upcoming legislative session tomorrow on Closer Look. In other news, early person, early person, early voting in Georgia continues to break records. Secretary of State's office says turnout hit nearly 300,000 people just yesterday. That's on top of the more than 180,000 that voted Saturday and Sunday in the counties that had their polls open. Now, Monday's mark is the single biggest day in Georgia's early voting history, topping a day in the 2020 presidential election. The numbers are also showing thousands of younger people who did not vote in November cast ballots in the runoff. Georgians are still spreading the flu or flu-like symptoms at one of the highest rates nationwide. That's according to the latest CDC data. State public health officials say more than 1,000 people across metro Atlanta have been hospitalized since the beginning of October. Officials say this spike in hospitalizations hasn't been this high this early since the 2009 swine flu pandemic. Public health officials urge Georgians to get their flu vaccine and, of course, continue to wash their hands. When we come back, Atlanta City Councilmember Keisha Sean waits. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE here in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. As mentioned, could a citywide curfew for Atlanta youth be part of many solutions needed when we talk about addressing youth-related crimes? Now, this, of course, after a weekend shooting near Atlantic Station left a 12-year-old boy dead and five others wounded. 
We welcome now Atlanta City Council Member Keisha Sean Waits. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ms. Scott, for the opportunity. Let's begin here because you, along with fellow council members yesterday, heard from De'Erica Charles, the mother of Zion Charles, again, the 12-year-old boy who was shot and killed this past Saturday. I want to I want to play a clip for our listeners. My son is gone. I don't have no son no more. Oh, he's gone. And I cried out for help. I cried out for it, y'all. I promise y'all, I cried out for it. But I felt my son. I felt my kids. I felt myself. I felt like I didn't do enough. But I cried. And I cried. I called him when I was there. I cried, y'all. I cried. Because y'all, please help. Help these young boys while they still got a chance. Because I don't have a chance no more. I don't. Councilmember Waits, your emotions as you listened to Ms. Charles yesterday? Uh, Ms. Scott, it was very difficult to listen uh, to her remarks. I think that Zion's mom spoke the pain and anguish of so many Black mothers nationwide uh, who have lost their children to violence. And she also gave a call to action, and Mm -hmm. that is that Zion's death should not be in vain. And and it is my hope and prayer that, you know, we can all coalesce. Uh, Zion is the son of Atlanta. And I think right now it's time for everyone to act. That is the retail vendors. That is all parents. Uh, that is faith organizations. And for us to put our hearts and minds together to find a solution. When we talk about finding solutions, and again, depending on whom you ask, you'll get a lot of different initiatives. You'll get a lot of different suggestions. You, We're going to get to your curfew proposed legislation in a moment, but I want to go back because if folks are talking about what needs to happen, this is a holistic approach. You just mentioned a lot of different entities here, so you see this as it's going to take a holistic approach. Absolutely. Um this is not a, a one-size-fits-all dynamic. And I want to be clear, many people don't know that we actually have a curfew in place at 11 p.m. for individuals who are 16 years and under. Mm-hmm. The exclusions that were done by Councilmember Amos were for homeless and unsheltered teens, individuals who are working in organized athletics. So there is a curfew in place. What? I think it's also important to note that Atlantic Station had a 3 p.m. curfew mm-hmm. on the day uh, of the tragedy and the loss of Zion. What's your response to someone who says, well, listen, at the end of the day, the city cannot parent young folks. Uh, there are so many other wraparound services that are needed. And I actually have a question here from a listener who says, look, you know, are there other services that the city and, and can also partner with other organizations that can help parents and children and children give children some other option besides just hanging out. And we want to be clear. We all hung out with each other when we were young as well. Um, so you want to be careful not to tell kids they can't hang out with their friends. Of course, and they're doing something they ain't got no business doing. But can you understand folks saying, where do you draw the line here? And what is the city's uh, role? And Ms. Scott, I, I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm extremely sensitive to that conversation. I am a youth. Uh, where I was a youth, rather, that engaged in organized athletics uh, all of my high school years. And so I would have been one of those youth that would have fallen into the category that we are discussing. But but while I appreciate for some families this may be an inconvenience, Mm -hmm. I believe that this is a very small price to pay to save lives because there is a responsibility. If you are having to plan the funeral of your 12-year-old child, I can assure you, you would choose to be slightly inconvenienced. The other piece is this. We're not saying that young people shouldn't go out and enjoy themselves. What Mm -hmm. we're saying is, is that large gatherings of youth should include some type of adult supervision. Mm -hmm. I am told that there were nearly 400 young people gathered uh, at Atlantic Station uh, on the evening of the loss of Zion. I think we all know uh, having that many young people unsupervised without an adult probably is going to have some challenges. And someone had to have seen that many young people mm-hmm. getting on a train or, or you know, moving about. Uh, and again, I want to add that Atlantic Station had a 3 p.m. curfew. So, you know, again, this does not fall exclusively on APD or the Atlanta Police Department. No, mm-hmm. this is not the role that the city should play. But I also believe that it is our job to make decisions that will improve the quality of life and ensure public safety for everyone that resides in our city. And I believe, uh, given uh, the tragedy of Zion, that it is time for us to act 
uh, and to put some measures in place that it's my belief that will possibly save the lives of other young people. Uh, we have a police shortage. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had some challenges. I remember several months ago, we had eight individuals who were shot at a gas station on Northside Drive here in Atlanta. And so again, we're simply saying that 12 year olds simply should have a guardian of some level of supervision uh, to be out at that type of facility. Let's talk about the legislation that you are proposing. This would call for a 7 p.m. citywide curfew for all youth ages 17 and under. That is correct. Uh, essentially, what we're asking for, unless you are involved in organized athletics, you're working uh, our job or you are with your parent or some type of uh, supervised guardian uh, that can provide, you know, care for you or whatnot, we believe that this is the hour, uh, at least I believe that this is an hour that will be reasonable for young people, specifically a 12-year-old child, uh, to be sheltered or to be home. What's your response to someone that says, look, the Atlantic Station curfew was supposed to be effective in terms of public safety. Well, first of all, let's back up. Do you think that that Atlantic Station's own curfew, was that effective at all? Well, I think anytime you have 400 young people who are all gathered, uh, it's my understanding that they, they did actually ask them to leave. Mm -hmm. uh, many of the small business owners uh, were fearful after the shots were fired and frankly didn't know what to do. Uh, again, this is not to demonize the Atlantic Station. Uh, they have hired additional security. Uh, there are 26 uh, 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 APD uh, officers who, who work when they're off duty. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they've taken the measures. They put the, uh, the uh, curfew in place. But, but they're going to have to have, this is going to require all of us, Ms. Scott, this is going to be a, a cooperative effort for everyone across the city to get engaged. With this legislation, obviously, you, you talked about some, you know, exceptions. And also, too, as we know, many youth under the age of 17, they have jobs. And those jobs could also be important to their household. So you are going to allow for some of these exceptions. I mean, there are, there are some as young as 15 that have after-school jobs. Uh, in the summers, I had an after-school job uh, at the age of 16. But I will submit this to you. Uh, that on the days that my, uh, uh, I was not, you know, engaged in, in riding the bus to and from work, my mom picked me up. Uh, here's the reality. I think we know when you have someone that's out that has reasonable business to be out mm -hmm. in the after hours, and I think you know the difference. Again, as I indicated to you, one of the patients described that scene. She said it looked like a high school had just let out from recess or some type of school venue. There were so many young people out there that no one really knew what was happening. It almost appeared to be some type of organized gathering. Mm -hmm. And again, this is not the responsibility that should fall exclusively on Atlantic Station. Last thing, that piece of legislation will also call for retail shopping centers, places where young people tend to gather to deny access and or interest. If you know that you're going to enter McDonald's and, and you're a young teen, and you're coming inside the facility and you're unsupervised and you don't have an adult with you, you should not be served. And these are drastic measures because these are drastic times. Does something like that put extra force or, or, or could it cause problems for those retail establishments that say, look, you know, we already are trying to do what we can with our security. And does it put them in the middle of a, a possibly, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but possibly some type of conflict or tension with mass groups of people who want to come in and say, look, we want to shop. You can't deny me shopping. Well, I think we've got to change the culture in Atlanta. And and this is a very unique set of circumstances, Rose. And I think given the tragedy and the loss of Zion, again, as I said, Zion is the son of Atlanta. That his loss is on all of our hands. And so we all have to lean forward. In that, in what you heard, and we just paid, we played a, a very small clip from the excerpt with Mrs. Charles. You also heard her talk about the fact that, listen, there needs to be something for these kids. There needs to be some intervention, and also, according to an article with the AJC, in terms of Miss Charles mentioned the fact that her son was being coerced by older youth to to break into cars, and that, according to Miss Charles, she pleaded 
with APD to do something, to intervene. And, and according to her, they, they said they couldn't do anything because he hadn't technically committed a crime yet. She had talked about, listen, I, I even would want him to be arrested if he's doing something to maybe teach him a lesson. There's so many optics around all of this. And again, it's not, it's not no one, no one solution is going to solve all of this. But when you heard her talk about the fact that she said, look, older boys are, have been influencing him. There's another problem there, too. I think that uh, this case speaks to several unmet needs. I think it speaks to the lack of affordable housing. I think it speaks to poverty, low wages, lack of access to health care or mental health care services. Many times uh, Zion's mother talked about him having mental health challenges. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this is one area where the city can act. We can pass policy that provide some type of wraparound services. We can act to work with KIPP where this young man attended school to get them brief services and, and counseling for the young people uh, who have been impacted by his loss. So there are some things that we mm -hmm. can all do. Uh, I've received numerous emails from uh, churches and faith organizations who want to provide support groups to mothers who've lost their children. So I think that this is also an opportunity, Ms. Scott, for us all to corral and rally together and again, put our hearts and minds together to find a solution. What's your response to someone who says you you are proposing a citywide curfew? Perhaps it's unfair because there may be other areas of the city where this is not a problem. Is there a way to to with this legislation? Are you going to take suggestions that maybe somehow this be modified? Are you going to work with your fellow council members? So one, I want to be clear, I don't speak for all members of the Atlanta City Council. Sure. This is a proposal because I believe that we need something very much drastic in our city. Uh, there were several exceptions that were made for young people who have legitimate business, such as a job, organized athletics. And then we have a large group of unsheltered teens that we're also working mm -hmm. to provide assistance to. So I think that uh, certainly we, we, we have put some measures in place to be sensitive to that. Uh, it's my belief, and again, I just simply want to be clear that we also have to have a conversation about parental accountability. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a no judgment zone. We're not judging anyone. Mm -hmm. But what we want to do is lean forward. We don't want to continue to be in a reactionary posture at all times. We know that we have challenges in our city regarding public safety. We've seen the data, and we know that oftentimes these crimes are committed by individuals who are less than 12 years of age. And I submit to you, there is no logical reason why a 12-year-old should be out unsupervised at any hour beyond 7 p.m. What is your reaction and to those who are saying that there's something else that's not being talked about, the fact that this is also related to gun violence? And from what we know so far from APD, these are individuals all under the age of 18. We know that at least in both of these groups, these two groups that had some issue, folks had guns under the age of 18. W what do you propose to address that? Do you make parents well, accountable if they're, if they're, if they're someone under the age of 18 commits a crime with a gun? I mean, there's so many, there's a lot here I know, and I don't want you to think I'm picking on you, but there's, a, there's just a lot involved here. So Rose, you, you and I spoke several years ago uh, during my tenure at the Capitol, mm -hmm. you know, the lengths that we went to to have conversations about gun reform. Mm -hmm. You're very familiar with this. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to scapegoat and put this on Republicans, but frankly, that is a national conversation. We're talking about right here in Atlanta, what is the solution for today? We're, we're, we're speaking of something that I believe is a very small, minute, minor inconvenience uh, to parents and to stakeholders to save the lives of young people. Uh, with respect to gun reform, we know that we have a lot of work to do. Uh, we have an upcoming election to which you have some very difficult decisions to make. And frankly, I think that, you know, it is time to have a very serious conversation surrounding gun reform and how we keep guns out of the hands of young people. But in the meantime, in terms of what we can do today, I think a curfew mm -hmm. is the first step. What's the feedback from your fellow council members? Have folks pulled you to the side and say, look, you know, we really need to think about this? Do you have some support? Um, 
there, there are several members who are interested in moving something forward. Uh, I can't speak to what their legislation looks like. Mm-hmm. I don't believe it will be 7 p.m. Uh, and so I know for others, the time was problematic for some of them. And so hopefully on Monday, uh, you will see some movement uh, in terms of us coalescing around a piece of legislation that we all can live with. But uh, again, I think given the tragedy and the loss of Zion, mm-hmm. uh, it is important uh, that we lean forward and uh, uh, put some steps in place to protect the public and our young, vulnerable populations. Did you have an opportunity to speak with Mrs. Charles at all? Yesterday, when she concluded uh, her comments, I, I went outside to to chat with her. And at the time, the mayor's staff was speaking with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a number of uh community leaders uh, that were coalescing and surrounding her at the time. So I have not had the opportunity to speak to her one-on-one. But uh, the aunt was present as well as the grandmother. And it is our hope uh, to meet with them, to talk about next steps, and to figure out how we can provide them with any resources that may be needed. Atlanta City Councilmember Keisha Sean Waits, I appreciate you taking the time to address this very serious issue in our community. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Scott. Have a great day. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. What inflation? Well, despite inflationary woes, holiday spending is expected to gross more than $900 billion in sales. Yes, billions would be. But here's a question. If you go to the store, will your item be in stock? Or if you bought it online, will it be shipped in time for the holidays? Which I guess would be Christmas or Kwanzaa or whatever you want to do. So, again, we talk about the ongoing supply chain saga Joining me now, perhaps with some good news related to the supply chain, who knows? John Haber, Chief Strategy Officer for Transportation Insight. Welcome. Good afternoon. Great to be here once again. Now, is that a grin of good news or a grin of I've got bad news? (laughs) There's both, Rose, as always. All right. So here, let's go back because I read this from an Axios piece. Quote, the supply chain woes that thwarted holiday shoppers last year are mostly resolved. Close quote. Then I read this from the supply chain brain. Quote, supply chain disruptions are a top concern of U.S. retailers as they enter the 2022 holiday season. Close quote. John, somewhere the truth lies in there, right? It's constantly evolving. What kind Uh, of answer is that? (laughs) Yes. Things look much better at this time than they did last year. However, we have this small issue with a potential rail strike in the next 10 days. Yes. How that impacts the direct consumer uh, for the holidays, 30% of cargo in the U.S. moves via the rails. Right. I saw that. And in fact, I love this quote, roughly 30% of freight moves by rail in the U.S., everything from chlorine to corn to cars, close quote. And you talked about the impact. Now, they say, they, I love it when folks say that, because I get on folks and they say they, experts say this nationwide rail shutdown could cost the country $2 billion a day. It would be devastating. That's why the president stepped in yesterday and asked Congress to step in uh, and prevent it from happening. However... Well, the, the White House tried to step in last time, and look what happened. <laughs> they, they did, but Congress can step in, yeah. and they can force uh, uh, the, uh, a deal uh, they can force mediation. And the problem is the labor unions do not want them to step in. And so you're dealing with, you know, a Democratic president. Uh, the labor unions support the uh, the president more so, I would say, than on the Republican side. Well, President side. Biden appears to be yeah. supporting the freight workers here, though, it appears. Uh, the Appears. Well, he the unions do not want Congress to step in and intercede well but if they can't get a deal done what do you do and let's back up then because if if they don't get a deal done i think by december 9th is this deadline here 
what will that I mean, we talked about $2 billion a day lost, but for the holiday season, I mean, stores, retailers are still expecting product. You know, we're still expecting those, you know, I just ordered some very groovy curtains. Yes. And so for you with the curtains, it's likely not to be impacted. The stuff that you, uh, that now people How do you know? Are... You don't know where my curtain's coming from, John. <laughs> I got some high-end curtains, brother. Well, they're, if they're high-end, they're not moving on the rails, probably. <laughs> they're moving uh, over like, via truck or they're moving via air, not via the rails. Mm-hmm. Where the rails really come into play is on a lot of the resources and things uh, that impact the way that consumers get to stores yeah. and, and impact fuel and mm-hmm. impact resources and things like that. That's where you really see the problems. What you, what the consumers are buying right now, it's either in a distribution center mm-hmm. or it's in a store. Uh, unless it's it's a very big, large. I, I, I was speaking yes. to someone who said, you know, they've still been waiting on their couch for like three months now because that's coming obviously correct from somewhere. correct and it's not not everything yeah. is in a distribution or in a store the but the areas that are really hurt by the rail stoppage it's not necessarily the immediate purchase mm-hmm. that consumers are making and ordering online or going into a store it's getting stuff to those stores for future purchases, mm-hmm. and it's uh, more of the commodities that move right. on the rails that are really a big, a big problem. So that could mean everything from what goes on our table, you know, to ingredients that they need to make the things. It could be a lot. Raw How, materials, yeah. food. Uh, now, uh, UPS is a huge user of the rails, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, it, it you know it could impact things that are moving for, for for the holidays, but they'll move that to trucks. UPS can move pull that off the rails and move it to trucks. The problem is uh, everything that moves on the rails can't be moved to trucks. There are not enough trucks. You need another half a million. Uh, trucks in the U.S. and a lot more truck drivers if you're going to move it off the rails. Well, to the and, truck. and last time you were on the program, we talked about the shortage in in drivers, and then you talked about the backlog at the ports. I also read John and, and explain this to our listeners because when you hear that perhaps you know shipping isn't an issue like last year's because stores, some retailers retailers still had just this inventory from. Last year, because it, it, it came in late after the holiday season. Is that true, too? Is that why we don't, you're saying that the supply chain may not be such a big issue there, this year? Yeah, right now there are there are no, dwell, there's no ships dwelling off the uh, port of L.A. or Long Beach. There and no, it wasn't that long ago ships. that it was almost like 30. There were 30, there were 50. Uh, at this time last year, there were over 100. Now, the East Coast ports have some backlogs. Savannah has been extremely busy as uh, a lot of people are redirecting freight to the East Coast for a couple of reasons. Number one, the uh, the longshoremen, the port worker, uh, they still don't have a, a deal mm-hmm. on the West Coast wow. ports, and that impacts 26 ports. In fact, last week there was a shutdown in Oakland, mm-hmm. uh, basically shut down the port. Uh, they're having protests, and there have been some uh, miniature strikes in uh, Alabama as well. Well, and we've seen a few, not a lot, but there have been some uh, Amazon distribution centers where workers were saying, we're not going back in until we get a deal done. Labor now, I mean, this is this is a major force here. Labor is causing a lot of concern. That's really driving the current issues within the supply chain. There's enough capacity right now uh, from a parcel standpoint, from a trucking standpoint, there's excess capacity from an ocean standpoint and an air cargo standpoint rates are dropping considerably things are running much more smoothly in those areas but the labor issues are causing a lot of concerns and there's some weather obviously coming in uh that could be uh very concerning even you know next couple days how would you assess that retailers big and small have weathered since because before we always talked about the pandemic the pandemic but how would you assess how they weathered through that storm and now this is a different type of storm 
yeah, well, the retailers right now are stuck with way too much inventory. You, the the news from Black Friday and Cyber Monday, it looks good on the surface, and then that uh, Black Friday set records for the largest single sales day in history, with yeah. sales up almost six percent over last year. But at what price? At what discounts? Right, because I got a great deal on those curtains. And let's be really clear that Cyber Monday activity netted about eleven point six billion. Yes. Surprising to you, I guess not. I uh, it is not. It's a little bit surprising. It looks to me, and as well as uh, some other experts, that people are kind of returning to the pre-pandemic event sales, mm-hmm. where uh, the discount started a week ago. You didn't see a ton of activity, but then Black Friday hit and mm-hmm. Cyber Monday hit, and the and the numbers are off the charts. And so it looks like we're moving back into some of the pre-pandemic patterns where we're, binge, we're, we're, we're buying a lot of stuff on these specialized days rather than spreading it out over the long term. But we'll see how things play out. Well, depending on what you just said, how things play out going into 2023, what's your outlook? I mean, the supply chain, are we going to no longer have to talk about this gridlock? Is the gridlock over? Uh, the gridlock is it's easing. I would say you can never say it's over because you're one event away from gridlock taking place. <laughs> yes, we like know. this rail yeah. strike. I mean, well, and there's still a war and, in, in the, the, the war in Ukraine. The, there's a lot of inflation for this country. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of optics. They here. are. And, and even though it's we're, we're talking December 9th, I mean, it's already impacting things. People are already making plans to pull stuff off the rails. They have to pull it before they can. It, it is already impacting things. Might then we see a surplus of the actual mode of transportation, the the, the ships. We we're, we know we're low in, in trucking, but what about all these ships and everyone was so concerned about and we need more ships, we need more ships. Now I'm wondering when we get to 2023, will we have this surplus of ships? You have a, a huge surplus of ships. There are blank sailings all over the place. Uh, sailings are being canceled. Uh, the, 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 the sailings from Asia to the U.S., uh, volumes have plummeted, and they are expected to continue to plummet in, in during the first half of 2023. So there's a, uh, a huge amount of excess capacity on ships. Well, what about what's happening in China right now? Yes. You know? uh, again, folk, I mean, this is the human factor, again, is, the, is at the core of how this – it's just amazing how this shapes the – not just in China, but the entire – global chain supply chain it does i just saw yesterday that apple is expecting a shortfall of six million mm-hmm. iphones because of the manufacturing issues at the foxconn plant who makes you know they make the parts that go into the iphone and that's where a lot of the protests are going on well bring and- back the old flip phone <laughs> the flip phone <laughs> the burner phone there you go. burner what, you, what y'all doing over there transportation inside you using burner uh, if if you had to, and I've asked you this before, when you look into that 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 crystal ball, that you know logistics and transportation and all this, um, what could be, what's the metric for saying we'll have a banner year for 2023 and all of this? What needs to happen? What needs not to happen? I guess inflation for this nation would be the or recession rather. Yeah, to have a banner year for 2023. Uh, that's going to be dependent on inflation mm-hmm. in the economy. It looks like the Fed is going to continue to raise interest rates. Uh, inflation has, you know, come down somewhat, but it's not being. Pre- we're not seeing it being predicted to come down much as we go into the first half of 2023. So that's really going to be the driver of what is makes a banner year or a less less than a banner year for 2023. What are you all telling your clients who use your services at Transportation Insight? Uh, we are telling our uh, clients to, uh, you know, stay the course, pay attention every single day. We're seeing it's an opportunity uh, to reduce cost uh, in certain areas, and based on the way the economy is moving. Now, when you cost say control, reduce cost, uh, yeah, you know, folks think cost. about layoffs or you know reduction in. 
that's not what you're talking about, right? I don't want nobody to lose their job, John. <laughs> I we're not we're certainly not advocating layoffs. In fact, we're hiring. We have 350 jobs posted. What right you're hiring now. for? Now, last time you were here, you said you were hiring. I got all these resumes. I can't guarantee anybody a job. What are y'all hiring for? They are everything's posted out on our board. Go IT? to uh, LinkedIn, IT, you name it, across every single function. We've got job posting salespeople, IT people, engineers, uh, you across all functions, finance people. We need people. We're uh, you need a lot PR of, people because I had a hard time trying to reach you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not touching that one in case our PR folks are. Listening. No, we're we're just teasing. We just <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm in trouble. <laughs> we have a lot of we have a lot of open positions, uh, and we, as opposed to some of our competitors who have announced large layoffs yeah there's no doubt there's a lot of layoffs we're going the opposite course we're looking to ramp up staffing and looking to take use this as an opportunity to take market share because we're ready we're reinvesting in the business but we're seeing big layoffs in a lot of other sectors well send me your resume rose at wabe.org i'm gonna forward these to you now again and i'm not i'm not copying for anybody's skill set i'm just saying We'll forward you the emails. We would love to see some resumes, so please send them our way. John Haber is Chief Strategy Officer for Transportation Insight. Now, they, you all moved They moved from Charlotte to Alpharetta here early this summer, right? We are building our new corporate headquarters in Sandy Springs. Why yes. Sandy Springs? How come you come to Atlanta? Rose, <laughs> I can't answer these questions. I'm just the Chief Strategy Officer. Uh, <laughs> Your phone is probably saying you are never coming back to Closer Look. John, as always, I appreciate you taking the time. And, of course, happy holidays. Happy holidays. Thanks for having me once again. Always great talking to you. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Way back in 2018, remember that year? Then WABE reporter Ross Terrell filed this. They look like the Razor Scooters kids ride around. Except you don't push off with one leg. They're electric. You stand on them and you're on your way. You unlock them using an app and a code on the scooter. I decided to ride one. I'm going to try my first bird scooter. So far, I've entered my driver's license information, debit card, and I scanned the code, and here we go. I found this scooter outside Centennial Olympic Park. They're scattered around the city. An app tells you where to find them. As I zipped around downtown, I wasn't really sure what rules I was supposed to follow, so I asked the city's chief bicycle officer, Becky Katz. I think you should operate in accordance to all traffic laws. You must yield to pedestrians in crosswalks. And scooters are not currently allowed on sidewalks. Wow. Well, the rest is history. And at one point, there were at least seven e-scooter rental companies operating in Atlanta. The scooters were welcome. And the scooters were hated, depending on whom you ask. Now, micro-mobility advocates called the addition of electric scooters a step in the right direction as a viable mode of transportation. But it would take nearly almost two years before city legislation would be adopted into better regulating these e-scooter rentals and bikes. And tragically, there were fatalities as well. Now, all this led to the city council to ban renting these e-scooters and e-bikes between the hours of 9 p.m. and 4 a.m., all for the purpose of public safety. But now comes a Georgia Tech study looking at the effects of that ban, including results showing an increase in vehicle traffic congestion. So let's talk to Dr. Omar Asensio, assistant professor in the School of Public Policy at Georgia Tech. Professor, welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you today, Rose. You ride scooters? I certainly ride scooters. In fact, I rode one today on my way to work at Georgia Tech. What street were you riding down? That's right. It's Spring Street. Are you insane? <laughs> That's right. You know, you know, it, you're absolutely right. It does take a little bit of a, a sense of adventure yeah. to sometimes ride certain streets in, in Midtown, of course. Um, and of course, there's been, you know, some movements towards building dedicated lanes yeah. to assist with these micromobility devices, scooters and e-bikes. But obviously, the coverage of dedicated lanes is very thin across the city. Yeah, well, you still have folks who say, look, you know, you all are talking, and this is a whole nother story. We talk about, you know, bike lanes, but 
listen, every neighborhood, as you know, there's not equity in every neighborhood. So for some neighborhoods, they, they say, look, can we get sidewalks first? Uh, let's back up. Why did you all want to study the, the impact of this ban to begin with? And what were you looking at? So this is a great question. So, you know, if you look at global projections for the growth of micromobility, um, the estimates are that this market is going to be worth $300 billion by 2030. Hmm. And so this is across China, Europe, and the United States. So this, you know, movement in the urban centers to allow for this like mixed mode use with, with shared scooters and shared, you know, electric bikes is, is really a global phenomenon. And so there's been, you know, as you mentioned, on both sides of this debate, uh, whether or not scooters actually have an impact on sustainability in cities. And the idea is that if scooters uh, displaced car use for first and last mile travel, then that has the potential to re significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And of course, with that comes the mm -hmm. air, air pollution, air quality co-benefits associated with those emissions. So, you know, someone listening says, listen, from uh, sustainability and in the environment and all that, that's great to hear. We know, but there is an issue with public safety and also for cities, some cities, infrastructure. They just don't have the inf infrastructure to meet the demand and the growth of, of all these e-scooters and, and e-bikes. When you look at a city like Atlanta, and I'm asking for your assessment here, is the city of Atlanta equipped from an infrastructure standpoint to handle this micromobility as a 24-hour a, a mode of transportation with the e-scooters? Sure. I mean, I think what we're seeing is that the city of Atlanta has really been a leader uh, nationwide in terms of allowing the proliferation of electric scooters. And of course, you know, already back in 2019, when the original safety regulation went into place, there were over 10,000 uh, permitted devices that were already floating around uh, and being used across the city, which is, which is you know, quite a starting number for any, any urban center. Mm -hmm. And so I think what we're seeing now is that both the physical infrastructure needed to support these devices uh, and the digital infrastructure uh, you know, investments have to be made in these in both of these areas. And what's happened really is that the innovation has really happened mm -hmm. and we're kind of having to catch up on building the necessary infrastructure. Well, and that's in this. That's a problem, not just for Atlanta, but a lot of cities. So with this study, tell our listeners what came out of it. Give us an executive summary if you can. Sure. So we we essentially, you know, in 2019, when the public safety regulation was put into place, the city of Atlanta passed what are called no-ride zones. Mm -hmm. And this is using a new technology called geofencing that would remotely shut down these devices uh, that to comply with the regulation, of course, from 9 p.m. to 4 a.m., as you mentioned. And so one of the interesting you know, innovations of the way the implementation of the policy you know, went into effect is that you know, we could automatically have uh, near-perfect compliance to that safety regulation. Mm -hmm. So sure enough, at 9.01 p.m., when the time of the ban was enacted, all of the scooter provide all these digital platforms would automatically shut down these 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 devices and you can no longer rent the scooter. Right. So this created in the city of Atlanta a perfect natural experiment to understand what do users, you know, how do users get around and what do they do when scooters are suddenly not available? And so, uh, you know, in the study, we, we leveraged a, a very large data set from Uber called Uber Movement for the city of Atlanta, which allowed us to very uh, to quantify the effect of this sudden ban on scooters on urban traffic congestion mm -hmm. in terms of the travel times in the city center. So we compared Midtown and other census tracts around uh, the, the covered policy areas to figure out whether or not if 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 users are no longer able to use these scooters at night, then would they substitute back to just you know using their cars and ride sharing? It, it, and sure enough, that's what they did. Sure enough, what we find is that, of course, for daily evening commutes, we found a nine to eleven percent increase in urban traffic congestion due mm -hmm. to the to the ban. And of course, we also looked at event based mobility. That's like traveling around Mercedes Benz mm -hmm. Stadium after the Atlanta United uh, games in, in the summer. And we found up to 37% increase in urban traffic congestion. So this, you know, this study was kind of the first one to show definitively that scooters are actually displacing cars and personal ride sharing uh, for first and last mile travel. Well, and depending on whom you ask, that could be a good thing or that could be a, a bad thing. I mean, if you're talking about, 
you know, are we trying to have less cars on the road? Or are we talking about having that extra mode of transportation for folks who do not have a car? So it's, you know, it depends on who you ask. With this information, could this support a policy recommendation for the city, you think? I think, you know, the interesting part here is that, you know, cities will then have to weigh these important trade-offs and unintended consequences of these safety regulations. On the mm-hmm. one hand, having these evening, you know, bans after sunset could help mitigate problems of uh, mortality and morbidity associated with these kinds of accidents and, and things that are you know, sometimes preventable. But on the other hand, it does come with real costs of congestion, which we estimated worth, you know, three and a half to ten and a half million dollars in congestion costs when you look at the value of time sitting in traffic. And so that was, you know, if, if you kind of extend that out to kind of in a conservative estimate, what that would be worth on a national basis, you know, these congestion costs can add up uh, on the order of over 530 million across the U.S. Yeah. And then, you know, someone listening says, look, we understand that, but you cannot put a price on human life. You know, there's public safety. I mean, tragically, there were some there were fatalities um, that happened with with the scooters. Is there a a somewhere in the middle? You think? You know, because some people who is... get off work, some folks may get off work at ten a.m. or at midnight. And look, Marta, they stop the train, stop running at a certain time. Perhaps a bus. You, you know what it's like to try to get a bus if you work in you know late. I mean, so is there a uh, is there some happy media, middle here somewhere? I think there certainly is, and you know this is going to be a uh, an important decision moving forward for many cities. And of course, Atlanta is you know somewhere in between. Of course, we do see that we have constant innovation in this area, uh, and at the same time has established as a leader in urban mobility in this in this way. And so I think you know studies such as these will uh, can kind of help pave the way for understanding what are the true impacts of these new urban mobility solutions, particularly for sustainability related applications. If you had to make a recommendation, would you tell the city officials, I think you all should lift the ban? That's what I want. Yes or no? <laughs> Fortunately, we checked. We, we checked the other night, uh, you know, with, you know, my students and my teams. And we just, hey, let's let's figure out if this ban is still in place because certainly there's been no public announcement. And so uh, sure enough, uh, you know, last night I, we tried to um, to see whether or not we could reserve a scooter. And, uh, you know, the good news or bad news, depending on your perspective, is that you could still reserve uh, any bird scooter or any one of the uh, electric uh, bikes in the evening. So I think we're we're back in full operation. So, so wait, are you saying that that there is no ban? Is that what you're saying? So the ban, is my, my understanding is the ban has now has now been lifted. Really? Because my producer Daniel said, sound like some white gossiping. Daniel said he tried to get a scooter and it was like, nah, this ain't happening. Now what what? <laughs> Y'all didn't do something to the scooter to, you know, like break it. <laughs> Y'all are smart over there at Georgia Tech. Y'all didn't, your students didn't do something over there, did they, Professor? Well, they, they still have, they still have their service territory. So as long as you're in the service territory <laughs> and you've got your credit card, they'll, they'll give you a scooter. <laughs> Let me ask you this as we begin to wrap up. And we, we've talked about this before. We actually did a series called Gridlock, What's Moving Atlanta in Terms of the Future. And micromobility is such a big part of it. Are there any other cities around the nation that are kind of doing it right when it comes to regulating the the e-scooters and the e-bikes? I know Detroit has a pretty good program from what I understand. Right. I mean, it's been a mixed bag in terms of, you know, know, even within a a single metro area, you have cities that are leaning in in terms of allowing allowing proliferation and then neighboring cities going all in on, on preventing them completely. And so I think what we're seeing, Rose, is, a, a very large urban-suburban divide. And so depending on the makeup and, and political um, pressures on allowing these kinds of urban mobility solutions, you'll see a different mix of regulations. So if you, if you look at what happened in San Francisco or Los mm-hmm. Angeles, right, you have like Santa Monica suddenly deciding to ban the scooters and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden they come back next door, but then in the, in the downtown area, you know, they're in. So it, it's a very complicated mix of uh, support and um and depending on, you know, this urban and suburban mix. Well, and then also, too, look, we, we know early on when this was just all the rage, there were some cities that were trying to sue because they didn't want the scooters. And there were some scooter companies that were trying to sue because they said we have a right to be here. And it came down, I think, to legislation. Is this something that's going to have to be regulated with legislation, depending on wherever you live, that that's what it's going to have to come down to? I think that's right. I mean, and for, for, for many years, the question was, 
is there a viable business model to keep these kind of, you know, scooter mobility providers going? And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, in terms of the buying and selling of these scooters for personal travel, of course, we see that through e-commerce. You can you can buy your own uh, personal uh, scooter sure. on Amazon or any other kind of thing. But I think the real innovation is, you know, you have it, the solution when you need it. And so this idea of shared micromobility mm-hmm. was was really the key to to driving, just making it easier for people to have it available when they need it for this last mile travel. So I think, you know, the there, you know, the mix of this 300 billion market is a combination of consumers deciding to buy their own uh, form of of scooter or electric bike to get around the city, whether it be for recreational use or getting around to their or, job. Or or might cities just say, look, we don't want any other brands. We'll have our own. That's scooters. right. We already have our bikes, so we could have our own scooters. And, you know, this is in the U.S., we believe in competition, so we'll see how it plays out. (laughs) Dr. Omar Asensio, assistant professor in the School of Public Policy at Georgia Tech. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. We'll have a link to your study. Very fascinating. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Rose. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. He rides a bike. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And Daniel wanted me to let you all know that he rides a bike as well. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.